Shalom, shalom, friends. Good morning and good afternoon. Um, if you're on the East Coast, great to be with you all. Thank you so much for joining. Before before we joyfully start our learn our learning, I do want to take a little moment of silence for the victims of the earthquake in Turkey and in Syria. If you will join me in just pausing for a moment and uh, putting our hearts and attention towards the thousands who have died and thousands who have been hurt in Turkey and Syria. Okay, special friends, thank you so much for being here. I, uh, as always, want to start with a little poll on this topic of emunah u holding faith and trust. How I relate to faith. Option one, I have a lot of faith in people, in the future, and in maybe in a higher power. Option two, faith and trust are things I constantly struggle with. Option three. Somewhere in between, it depends on the circumstances. Okay, friends, I know there's uh, the three options can never exhaust the potential of accurate sentiments, but um, if you'll make your closest uh, bet, bet, I see I've been influenced by Super Bowl culture. <laughs> okay, all right, let's see our results here. Okay, 33% say I have a lot of faith in in people in the future in a higher power, 22% say faith and trust are things I constantly struggle with, and 44% say somewhere in between depends on the circumstances. Wonderful, wonderful. So as always, I will be most excited for our conversation, but first I've organized some uh, preliminary thoughts for you. So as you know, we often separate the ritual from the ethical, the dogmatic from the moral, mitzvot ben adam lemakom, between people and God are considered different from mitzvot ben adam l'chavero, mitzvot between people. But is there a relationship between the two? We started talking about this last week. More specifically, how might emunah, holding faith, and bitachon, trust, in a higher being, a higher power, have an impact upon our ability to live with and engage in acts of kindness? Conversely, how might engaging in kindness impact our relationship with the divine. It goes without saying that one can have no faith or trust and of course still live with deep kindness. Being kind is not something exclusively for the religious, but can ancient Jewish wisdom around the power of emunah and bitachon fuel us with a greater potential to have a positive impact on the world? 
Judaism places an extremely high importance upon working on our character every day. The Chazon Ish, in his work on faith and trust, literally called Emunah Ubetachon, the topic of the session, wrote about how our faith and commitment to Torah can enhance this work. Here's what he says over here. If the Torah corrects character traits by virtue of its toil and by the acquisition of its wisdom, as the laws of the spirit dictate, there's a further aspect of the Torah, a light beyond human cognition, whose revelation in the Torah cleanses a person's soul and sensitizes them to taste the subtleties of wisdom and the pleasantness of light. They therefore love humility by nature and conversely hate haughtiness. They love kindness and hate cruelty, love patience and hate anger. For the entire being and desire of a wise person is to correct their character traits, and they are greatly distressed by their bad inclinations. A wise person feels no greater pain than when they stumble in a base character trait and feels no greater joy than the joy of correcting their character traits. So here we see this idea that a spiritually refined person is one who is deeply in touch with their character. Yes, they're deeply in touch with the other through empathy, but also with themselves. And a truly religious personality, by which I don't mean traditionally observant, I think of traditionally observant as a different category from a spiritual or religious personality, one who has a deep sensitivity in the world, right? Um, and those two often get conflated. Rabbi Eliyahu of, of Vilna taught, of, of course, this is the Vilna Goan, the Gra. He taught, it says in the Talmud, Chabakuk came and established the entire Torah on one principle. The righteous person lives through their faith. This refers to the quality of being satisfied with what one has. Right? Wow. So that's a few interesting steps there. Righteousness achieved through faith and faith meaning I am okay with what I have. And that being okay with what I have enables me to relate to other people very differently than if I'm not content with what I have. If I am kind of unfaithful in the sense that things are okay with where I stand. To be sure, to live with faith in a Jewish context should not be misunderstood as turning off the mind and making a leap into the absurd, right? That's the way some faith traditions talk about this. I have faith. I'm going to, it makes no sense, but I'm going to leap into the absurdities, right, of ideas be out of some notion of faith. Here's how Jonathan Sachs explains this in his commentary on the Haggadah. In Judaism, to be without questions is not a sign of faith, but a lack of depth. To ask is to believe that somewhere there is an answer. The fact that throughout history, people have devoted their lives to extending the frontiers of knowledge is a compelling testimony to the restlessness of the human spirit and its constant desire to go further, higher, deeper. Far from faith excluding questions, questions testify to faith that history is not random, that the universe is not impervious to our understanding, that what happens to us is not blind chance. We ask not because we doubt, but because we believe. Sachs also writes about the importance of building and maintaining communities of faith, 
right? Again, Jews mean something different by communities of faith, oftentimes than other faith traditions. He writes, the more friendship I share, the more I have. Ah, let me say that again. The more friendship I share, the more I have. The more love I give, the more I possess. The best way to learn something is to teach it to others. The best way to have influence is to share it as widely as possible. These are the things that operate by the logic of multiplication and not division. And they are precisely what is created and distributed in communities of faith. Friendship, love, learning, and moral influence, along with those many other things, which only exist by virtue of being shared. Communities of faith are where we preserve the values and institutions that protect our humanity. A community of faith cuts across boundaries. It brings together what other institutions keep apart. But how fundamental is trust to how our society can function beyond our parochial communities, right? So here we're saying, okay, faith and trust, great. We have faith communities and faith communities are designed to preserve love and friendship and trust and moral influence. Okay, great. So let's keep it over there, right? Don't talk about it in the corporate office. Don't talk about it in government. Don't talk about it at the gym. Go to your faith community and talk about those kinds of things. Ah, but is there a value to society at large to talk about these things? Okay, I'm quoting a little heavily from Sachs because this was really the prime of his work. The prime of his work was really thinking about the role of faith communities within society at large. He writes over here in his book, The Power of Ideas. I believe faith is part of what makes us human. It is a basic attitude of trust that always goes beyond the available evidence, but without which we would do nothing great. Without faith in one another, we could not risk the vulnerability of love. Without faith in the future, we would not choose to have a child. Without faith in the intelligibility of the universe, we would not do science. Without faith in our fellow citizens, we would not have a free society. So here comes the greatest challenge of all now. The test of faith is whether I can make space for difference. Can I recognize God's image in someone who is not in my image, whose language, faith, ideals are different from mine? If I cannot, then I have made God in my image instead of allowing him to remake me in his. Very interesting. So here we might have thought faith meant parochialism, right? My faith is right, others are wrong. But here the flip is that faith actually is in a greater being of diversity, which enables me to find infinite dignity in every kind of person. Interesting enough, I've been thinking just these last few days about the first case of alleged racism in the Torah. Anyone? Feel free to unmute yourself. What is the first case of exactly criticism of uh, Moshe's wife being a Kushite? Yes, thank you very much. So Miriam, who is a wonderful person and a great moral exemplar in our tradition, like all people in our tradition, we don't hold them up as saints. I think that's a distortion of our tradition to hold up our great ancestors as perfect people, but rather as people we can learn from. 
And that was the main thrust of the rabbis as well, that Miriam, like so many biblical figures, was an amazing person on so many levels. She saves baby Moshe's life in a sense. She is a major part of the Exodus story. And yet there are a few explanations about why she gets kind of the plague of leprosy. And the most common one is in her criticism of Moshe marrying a Kushite is actually, according to the Rashbam and according to the Ibn Ezra, a critique of her race, that actually Moshe's wife is black. Moshe marries a Jew of color. And um, it appears that Miriam thinks he's better than that. Now, it's a little anachronistic to just dump you know, 21st century racial sensitivities upon 4, 000, you know, 3,300 years ago. Nonetheless, the rabbis held, held the sensitivity, um, you know, hundreds of years ago, I mean, almost a thousand years ago, even, you know, even earlier, really, um, that God is colorblind. Yes, humans cannot be, but God is colorblind. And if you're going to be, mo if you're going to be Miriam, someone of that stature, you better not critique marrying someone based on their racial identity. And so that is an amazing kind of rabbinic insight way before issues of racial justice emerged in modern society. Um, in any case, that's um, just another aspect here of this notion that if I create God in my image, then God is a white man, right? That's one of my problems with the depiction of Jesus, right? How can you have like God in the flesh and be male, right? And limit God and then even make it a white male, like, like what a perversion of divinity to, to turn God into a white male. Now, again, all, with all my respect to Christianity, and I do have a lot of respect for Christianity and Christians, um, that is an aspect that I find uh, very challenging. And even if you go to Africa, and sometimes you go to African churches that were, you know, due to colonization, and you see a white Jesus up on a wall of all black people in an African church, it's, um, you know, as, 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 um, um, as as Mary Daly famously said, if God is a man, then man is God, and uh, and I find that theology um, you know problematic. In any case, so yeah, so here we see once again, faith involves um, loving a an abstract form of divinity, which is far greater than any one manifestation, and that that theology of divinity actually is the source of our appreciation. Um, yeah, blonde Jesus, <laughs> even more hilarious. Out of, out of the Middle East, the blonde Jesus. <laughs> uh, yeah, an, an Aryan Jesus with blue eyes and blonde, yeah. And uh, any, in any case, that uh, um, the source of our appreciation of difference emerges from a God of multiplicity that is contained within a unity. Okay, as we mentioned earlier, in addition to faith in God, we can talk about faith in people. Rev. Abraham Yitzchak HaKohen Cook wrote about his faith in others who have fallen from their spiritual potential. Here's Rav Kook in Shmona Kavatsu. The fallen souls with whom I associate give me strength. I love that, right? <laughs> the fallen souls with whom I associate. Right? He's not one of these religious people who says, oh, you got to stay with people who are on a high spiritual level. Don't go down in the mud, right? With people who, who just... Um, you know, uh, I, I was going to say something judgmental about, you know, uh, about modern society, but but I don't know if someone here, you know, connects with this social phenomenon, so I'm not going to say it. Okay, the fallen souls with whom I associate give me strength. I sympathize. I sympathize with them. 
I desire their rectification, their well-being, their light, their salvation, and they feel revivified and peace of mind. The essence of their depression stems from a thirst for the light of God and God's goodness, and they rejoice for there is someone who can speak to their inherent goodness. For I know how very deep the light of God burns in these fallen souls. A spirit from on high blows within them. How deeply in their souls do they want to walk in the pathways of light, in the ways of goodness and dignity? I am certain that in the end, God's aid will come to them. Now, um, now, Rob Cook says something um, uh, uh, patronizing and, I mean, offensive to atheists, but he means well. What he says is, ah, you think you're an atheist? You can't be. You, can, you have a soul, and there is light in your soul. You can deny that light in your soul if you wish, but it's still there, right? Each of us is connected to the infinite, and we can choose to deny it's there, but really it's still there. Now, um, on the one hand, I find that powerful, the notion of the equality of all human beings and that all of us have a soul, and that um, that soul is our connection to the infinite and gives us infinite dignity. On the other hand, you know, I'm sympathetic to those who might find that distasteful in the sense of kind of denying an identity. Like, don't tell me I'm not an atheist. I am an atheist, right? And so don't tell me I have a soul. I'm positive I don't have a soul. And who are you to tell me what, about what's inside of me? So I understand. I understand that side too. Further, believing in the possibility of teshuvah, of one's return to their core goodness, means believing in others and in other people's potential for transformation. In a similar fashion, one should have faith in oneself as well. Not only faith in others, but faith in oneself, Rob Cook argues over here. The righteous person must have faith in their life. They must believe in their lives and that they go in the righteous path from the foundation of their soul, that they are good and righteous. But one's constant status needs to be having confidence in oneself, right? The Kutzka Rebbe famously said after the Holocaust, more important than believing in God is believing um, uh, is believing that God believes in us, right? Or ultimately uh, concluding that believing in oneself, our actual capacity to bring to bring light to a broken world. Elsewhere, Rob Cook writes in another work, it is an evil sickness when moral sensitivities weaken too much until no, not only does one hold back from acting out of fear of doing wrong, but one is all, always terrified that they might engage in sin, in thought, or in action. The exaggerated fear of all sin causes one to lose the good within themselves and turns one into a lowly, depressed creature that does nothing except lie around and tremble. A person must believe in both their physical and moral capabilities. Faith unites it all together like love. Faith in our lives is a blessing from God, just as lacking faith is a terrible curse. So he wants to say over here, very interesting, that some people might be morally paralyzed. Oh, I just don't know who's right, what ideology is right, what political position is right, right? all the moral complexities. I don't know what's right. Um, and he says, but actually don't be so afraid of acting, of living, of believing in the power of love. And sometimes to, essay, to enter into messy moral territory means to have faith in our lives. 
faith in our lives that even when we don't know the answer, we must still try to raise up rather than break down. Consider two different types of righteous people as described by the Kedushat Levi, Rav Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. He writes, there's two types of Sadiqim, righteous people. One who serves the Creator. This is the Sadiq who serves the Creator and who has no other desire than to do so. This one believes that his or her power can influence the uppermost realms. As our sages taught, the Holy One, the Holy Blessed One decrees and the Tzaddik transmutes the decree into goodness. But friends, there's another type of Tzaddik who serves the Holy Creator. This one is exceedingly pious in their own eyes and thinks to themselves, who am I that I should pray to cancel the divine decree? And so they don't. This is as Rashi commented, Noah was of little faith. That is to say, Noah was little in his own eyes. He did not have faith in himself and that, um, that he was a tzaddik who could cancel the decree, for he did not think anything of himself at all. So here, very interesting, we see two different notions according to the um, of according to the Kedushas Levi of a tzaddik. One type of tzaddik says, I am so powerful. I am so powerful, not in an arrogant way, but I am so powerful. I'm going to change the world. I'm empowered to go make a difference and, and, and go raise money and train leaders and go advocate. And I'm going to pray because I think God wants my prayers and I'm going to pray for the sick and I believe it works. Right, the, the, the tzaddik who believes in their power of goodness and goes to, every day to dedicate themselves to it. Oh, but there's another type of tzaddik who says, who am I? I'm nobody. They're so humble. They're so humble. They have little faith in anyone or anything or even in themselves. And yet they still do good. They still do good. And I love those two models. Now, I want to offer um, two other models. And, and, uh, and it's great that we have two archetypes of great people in Judaism. Well, there's many other archetypes, but I'm going to give two others. One is called the Chassid, and one is called the Tzaddik. The Chassid is what we traditionally think of as the religious person. The Chassid is the pious one, the one who loves to pray and loves to think about their character and wants to meditate and wants to smile and be kind in little soft ways. And then there's the Tzaddik. The, the, right, the tzaddik is the one who is less interested in the religious life, but is more interested in the moral life. And how amazing that we have both archetypes, the chassid and the tzaddik, right? The, the, the religious one and the moral one. Now, of course, those two shouldn't be divorced, right? The, right, the notion of kind of religiosity and, and morality. But the fact that we have those two models, I think, is very powerful. Okay, friends, so how... Now, okay, wait, so now we talked about faith, different types, faith in self, faith in other faith in a higher power. What could be the good of that? Let's move into how do we cultivate faith? The opportunities might be all around us. We can rekindle our faith in people by following more righteous people and observing their ways, right? If all we do on Twitter, if you're still on Twitter, is follow scoundrels and comedians and people who love to scream, then oh, not necessarily going to make us better. We might laugh a little bit. But if we try to follow people we deem to be righteous, right? surround ourselves with friends, not that we just enjoy a good game with, right? Not a friend who we just have a shared history with, but a friend who we truly admire their virtue, right? And we and we are influenced by each other. We can reawaken our faith um, in people in, in such a sense 
And we can reawaken our faith in the divine by watching a baby being born or by sitting at the edge of the sea, like we talked about in Yira last week. And we can look up a starry night. Here's what the Sfat Emet um, had to share, as quoted by Rabbi Wolpe. The Sfat Emet argued that a lunar calendar is a sign of faith. The new month is declared when the moon is at its ebb, when the night is darkest, wrote the Sfat Emet. We declare belief in the month to come. One who sees the new moon is as one who sees God's presence. Having waited out the days of darkness, there is again light. So let me unpack that in case that may, doesn't make sense. No need to have a lunar calendar, right? I mean, it's it's nice, but um, like we talked about last week, no need for a seven-day work week, for sure. I mean, uh, the notion of a Shabbat is a total construction. You just need the solar calendar, right, in terms of uh, in terms of understanding, you know, the cycle. The lunar calendar um, <clears throat> is interesting. And what's interesting here, according to the Sfat Emet, is that, yes, right, we just observed Tuba Shvat, which means the 15th of the month of Shvat. And that is when it's a full moon. If you were if you were in my backyard on that night for what was supposed to be a Seder, but was really more a political conversation, <laughs> um, uh, then you also noticed the full moon or wherever you were, maybe you noticed the full moon, right? In the middle of the Hebrew month is a full moon, right? Over by Pesach, right? Um, and at, when do we say Kiddush Levana? When do we traditionally bless the new moon? At the beginning, right? The Sfat Emet is saying we bless the new moon when it is smallest, right? At the beginning of each Hebrew month as a way of saying in, in the darkest time, in the darkest time of the month, I have faith in light. I have faith in light. So faith can add so much to our quality of life. Uh, consider this idea. Love itself is an act of faith. Love itself is an act of faith. Our mistake is to believe that it is an act of faith in the beloved. Surely faith in the beloved is part of it, but deeper is faith in the world and in the presiding spirit of the world. When we love, we have faith that this universe will be kind to love, believes in it with us, will enable it to grow. Through faith, love is granted its measure of immortality. Fragile creatures cling to one another. Faith crosses the bridge of longing, the gulf of loss. You know, I've been visiting some senior residences re recently to get a sense of what they offer and how they work. And those are interesting places for some people um, whether it is um, uh, independent living or whether it is assisted living or whether it is the two combined where you get to stay in the same unit when you transition from independent living to assisted living. Those are interesting places in terms of how they're structured. I'm kind of a student of how they're structured and how they can bring light to people in, in that stage of life and how they promote social, you know, social experience and games and, and wellness. And, um, and how they can promote um, this 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 idea of love, right? To finish that Wolpe quote again, fragile creatures cling to one another, right? Fragile creatures can do the opposite. They can isolate themselves in their fragility, either because of shame of fragility, right? Or because um, of a sense that, you know, only I am here for me, right? Kind of a loss of faith that people will be there for them. 
which is understandable. I certainly would never judge that. Um, but faith crosses the bridge of longing, the gulf of loss. So friends, in talking about faith, let's not only talk about good faith, but let's talk about bad faith too. Abraham Yehoshua Heschel taught, really, nobody calls him that, Abraham Joshua Heschel, but that, that's how he grew up. Re religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, insipid, when faith is completely replaced by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless, right? We shouldn't pretend like that all kinds of faith are some positive force in the world, right? People of faith do horrific things in the world. And faith in many ways has been broken and oppressive and cold and robotic, right? And so we should be clear that when we're talking about this, that not only do we want to embrace a kind of faith that speaks to us, but also reject the kinds of faith that we think um, are, are uh, deleterious and, um, and cause pain and bring more heat than light. I once had the privilege to speak at a film festival, um, and I, it is probably a, a fact that if I ever spoke at a film festival, that is due to my friend Cheryl Hammerman, <laughs> um, if Cheryl's still here. Um, it was probably only due to her invite. Um, in any case, I spoke about a wonderfully complex film um, at this film festival. And after my remarks, the first question was of someone uh, felicitously taking issue with my critique of religious fundamentalism. The inane suggestion was that a nonviolent fundamentalist is actually good or at least okay, the person argued. To her dismay, I adamantly disagreed and argued for my working definition of a fundamentalist one who is willing to do something evil or even justify something evil because one believes that God in some non-rational form of faith obligates them to do it. But friends, I suggest that even one who justifies irrational religious principles above basic ethics when they clash is in a sense guilty of a type of violence. We all have ethical fundamentals we agree with. Religious fundamentalism, on the other hand, is about embracing an entire closed system with blind faith regardless of the ethical consequences. One key facet of fundamentalism is a rejection of pluralism, that there are multiple approaches, right? There's only one truth and I have it. And there are different kinds of violence. There is, of course, the physically abusive kind, but there's also the intellectual, spiritual, emotional types of violence. For example, when Christians pushed Native Americans to be Christians, this was a violent act. Then there is emotional violence. This is why the Talmudic rabbis taught that to shame another is akin to killing them, right? It says over there in Bava Metziah. Faith can sustain us in a messy, world, uncertain world. Rudolf Otto called faith the mysterium tremendum, a feeling of smallness encountering the infinite. It can inspire us to be connected to more beyond ourselves and to be connected to one another. My son's biggest fear is that the quote-unquote bad guys might be stronger than the superheroes. Indeed, that's my biggest fear too, that the forces of evil and the complicit bystanders are stronger than the forces of love and justice in the world. 
I think few watch the Russian-Ukraine uh, war and wonder, um, wonder in the end. I don't know where I'd be without faith, without some faith when I tell my son falling asleep that the, that the superheroes will win out over the bad guys in the real world, so to speak. Some faith in God, some faith in good people, faith in faith that it sustains me. Rabbi Harold Kushner, and here I'm going to I'm close to the conclusion. Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote, to have a child is more than a biological event. It is a statement of faith in the future, a way of saying that you want to, there to be a future. If we are rooted in the faith that the highest power wants us to courageously live our unique purpose in our short lives, then we should not be concerned about what others think when we live our truth and speak our truth. Rather, we can and indeed must allow our faith in one another and in the future to drive us towards chesed, towards one another. Let's pledge to break from the conformist herd mentality and reconnect with our deepest purpose of connecting with one another, ensuring a bright future for those who follow us on this beautiful earth. Um, okay, good. So um, let me just um, respond to Gary's uh, uh, wonderful point in the chat. And I welcome others who want to do that as well. Can you define faith in Judaism versus faith in Christianity and other religions? So I, let me first state the obvious thing that Gary intends in there, but he didn't want to write in whole essay, which is, I don't believe there's something called Judaism, right? There are Judaisms, right? Our Judaisms are so fundamentally different that they they literally are, are, are such clashing ideologies at times. So too, um, and to a different degree, uh, but I think something similar could be said of Christianity and of other religions as well. And so I don't think it would be easy to talk about a, a monolithic Jewish approach to faith as contrasted by a monolithic Christian or monolithic Buddhist approach or, Christ, or Muslim approach or Hindu approach. Each of those deserves a great nuance. And of course, Gary means that here in the question. And picking up on that, um, on that notion, you know, when we say amen, I think people know this, but as a reminder, when we say amen or amen, that word comes from emunah, faith, right? Um, Aleph mem nun is, is emunah, you just add a hey on the end. What I'm saying when I say amen is, oh, I have faith in what was said, or I affirm, I affirm that, that bracha, I affirm what you just said. Um, and so, um, and so faith is an affirmation, ultimately. Faith is a way of affirming something to be true or to be good. It's aspirational rather than dogmatic, as I see it in a, in a Jewish sense. It's a way of saying, I not, ah, that is perfectly right or true. That is something I want to connect to. I'm saying amen. Of, I want to be a part of that blessing you said. I'm saying amen. Um and so as opposed to a type of faith, which in, let's just take a mainstream traditional Christian approach, which is the pathway to salvation, right? The pathway to salvation is through faith. It is believing dogmatically in truth and in a particular truth um, that enables my salvation. Um, and I think that that is... Um, you know, something very different that I think uh, most Jews mean here um, uh, in terms of a 
of a connection. And so I think that um, I think that faith in Judaism uh, historically, in many ways, is about resiliency. It is about seeing the unseen. It is about um, holding on to light when we only see darkness around us, in a sense. Um, but there's another way I want to say it also. And here I want to lean on C.S. Lewis. Um, because C.S. Uh, Lewis said and um, that faith is believing in yourself in your moment of greatest clarity. Right? That is to say... Not every day can we work through, unless you're a Glea, not every day can you work through the deepest philosophical challenges. <laughs> um, some days you just rely on what you thought about 10 years ago and just continue to think true. Right? Not every day do you have to be in a spiritual crisis. Is there a God? Right? You came to a conclusion nine years ago when you thought about it deeply and you continue to rely upon that conclusion. Right. So, so too, last night I set the alarm, for, let's say for 530 in the morning, the alarm goes off. And before I go hit the snooze button, I say, um, you know, um, I believe in myself that when I set the alarm for this time in the morning, that that was the right thing to do because I had more clarity then than I do now. Right? <laughs> and so faith can be not just in, in what is not seen or not understood, but faith in ourselves in our moment of greatest clarity. Right. I am I am working as a rabbi and I'm so tired because I'm running to another funeral and to another class and to another fundraising meeting. And I'm so tired. But then I remember like I made this commitment in this time of clarity and I'm going to keep going or I'm a doctor and I'm, I'm exhausted. I've been in surgery for six hours. Right. But I remember like, like, yes, although I'm exhausted or I'm in a marriage and it's really bad right now in the marriage, but like, you know, but in this moment, I remember that I have this broader commitment I'm committed to. And so like, there's a sense of like uh, faith in ourselves and um, in addition to faith in the unknown. The last thing I want to say, because this is way too long winded. So, so <clears throat> sorry, is um, also faith in what we know rather than just faith in what we don't know. Right. Um, right. Sometimes we think of faith as here's what I know. And now I'm going to have faith to fill in the gap with what I don't know. And that's an interesting thing to think about. But the other way to think about it is there's a bunch of stuff I know. And I'm going to have faith that I should actually align my life based on those things I know, right? That I know them deeply enough that I can live by them, right? Because we may have come to conclusions that I love this person or that I believe in this or that, or that um, on some level I believe in myself, right? But to take those things that I know and actually choose to live by them is another form of faith. Okay. Hi, Eileen. Hi. Um you said something early on, and I've always felt that the extremists in any religion are um, hypocritical. They want to believe that they are doing their best, and yet they manifest in such a way that they knock down everybody else and they raise themselves up. And your term that Judaism wasn't one, but there were many types of Judaism, I think applies equally to all other religions. But that was the thing that caught my attention. 
Thank you so much. Yes, I, I, I appreciate both of those, um, those comments. And that is our commitment to pluralism here, to see so many different paths that we can all walk on and not just see them, but appreciate them. You know, and on your point of fundamentalists, I'll, I'll share something funny that happened to me locally a few years ago. Maybe, maybe you'll find it more scary than funny. I was in a, um, a, a very, let, let's just call it a very traditional synagogue uh, visiting. And um, a fundamentalist rabbi came over and he said to me, you know, the Taliban is right. I said, excuse me? He says, the Taliban is right. If God tells you to, to kill the infidels, you, you must do it. The only thing is that the only reason they're wrong is because God didn't actually tell them that. <laughs> I'm like, all right, not going to pray here so often. <laughs> you know, I thought it was hilarious. You know, they're, they're right because if God tells you to kill the infidels, you can do it. But but they're wrong because God didn't actually tell them that. So anyways, um, yes. Oh, hi, Lauren. Let's go over to you, Lauren. And then Cheryl, then Aglaia. Oh, you give out with that rabbi telling you this. Go kill the infidels. Give out. Anyways, um, I think for any child of a Holocaust survivor, faith in Hashem is really hard. And, and and I'll be somewhat personal. I mean, no problem with faith in, in Torah from Sinai. And so I do what I have to do. Um, faith that things will turn out all right. Well, maybe there's not supposed to be. But I, but I learned something very interesting in a recent course I was taking from Hadar with um, writings of, uh, I think he's one of your mentors, Raviyatz Greenberg. And he was talking about what he called the third simtsum. So for those who don't know what simtsum is, simtsum is the idea that God contracts, yeah? That even to create the world in the beginning, God contracted in order to leave room, room for creation. But the third simtsum from what Rabbi Greenberg writes about is that it's sort of saying, all right, guys, I'm totally over here. And I'm leaving it, it up for you humans to figure it all out. And <clears throat> there's some faith from Hashem that the humans <clears throat> will eventually treat each other well, will treat the land as it should be. Um, but it's about the only way I can, I can deal with it. But I thought it was a fascinating, fascinating idea. And, and Rob, uh, Greenberg also wrote a lot of stuff on, on post-Holocaust theology too, which yeah. is very interesting. Thank you, Thanks. Lauren, for, sh for sharing that. Thank you so much. And just to, just to build off Lauren's in insights there uh, with Rabbi Yitz, I mean, yes, in this post-Holocaust theology of the third simsum, um, a real belief that God is uh, n does not act omnipotently or said more radically is not omnipotent, right? In the, um, and that preserves God's benevolence. Um, because if if God were good and omnipotent, it makes no sense why there's evil. The only reason there can be evil if either God is not good or that suffering is not bad or that um, God is not all-powerful. And so he gives up on om omnipotence and says, yes, there, we can connect with a presence of a higher power, but God is not in control. Human responsibility has increased. Our responsibility has now increased as God's presence gets less. less uh, and in, in a sense... That requires a deeper, a different kind of faith, 
there was the type of faith that says God is in control of the world. And I believe that. And there, I, there's many people who still believe that. And then there's a type of faith that Yitz is talking about that um, God is not in control of the world. And, and I have faith in that God, um, that God's presence. And um, anyways, lo lots more to say there. But uh, thank you, Lauren, for, for moving us in that direction and thinking about uh, uh, in Simsu. Oh, hi, Cheryl. Hello. Um, first of all, just a couple of things. Thank you for the commercial for the film festival, right. which begins on the 19th of February and runs in through March, the very beginning of March, um, if you're interested. And also um, a couple of things you said. One is uh, that that resonated with me was closer to what Wolpe said when you said about um, uh, people cling to each other or or you know uh, people uh, people cling to each other in faith about love because you said earlier that you know faith about loving someone you have faith in loving someone but I immediately thought that that a person has faith in being loved too. So it's just more than, you know, you're loving someone else, but you have faith that the person you're loving, hopefully loves you back. And, uh, that, the, and then the third thing I wanted to say was about this, uh, the, um, that evil is often done in the name of faith, which you commented on. And then there's the expression about blind faith, but what's the opposite of blind faith? I mean, questioning faith, you're quite, or because we always question, but blind faith is often uh, something that is pursued without even thinking. You're going to do this because you have blind faith that ABC is going to be a result of that action that you're taking, or you have faith that, that something is going to happen positively, you have blind faith. And I, I, I come sometimes connect blind faith with doing something that's evil in the name of faith, because it's, you're blindly pursuing a goal because you have faith that the higher power is going, is, is this is what you're supposed to be doing. So th those are just a couple things that I jotted down. Awesome, Cheryl. Thank you so much. You know, on your first comment, remind me of um, uh, better to have loved and lost than never have loved at all. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, and thinking about, um, yes, of the power of receiving love as a faithful act, because there's got to be some calculation that um, in receiving love, I become very vulnerable in a sense, if that love is lost or not manifest or not um, actualized? And is my faith that, that that love will not be lost? Or is my faith that it will still have been better to have loved um, and lost that love um, than had I not loved at all? And so that is an interesting insight you're offering us here around not just what will be offered us around that how faith can enhance our ability to love others, but also how faith can enable, enhance our ability to receive love from others, um, you know, you know, given that. So thank you. Thank you for that. And I think that is very true um, that in some, in some ways it's scarier to allow ourselves really feel, really feel loved than to have someone else feel loved um, on your, on your other point around blind faith, which I appreciate so much. Um, you know, I'm, I immediately go to Kierkegaard who, you know, talked about the teleological suspension of the ethical, 
by which he meant um, he thought that Abraham was the greatest hero because in, in the Binding of Isaac story, according to that traditional read of the story, because the greatest hero is one who sat, suspends the ethical based upon this deeper commitment, this blind faith, right? Um, that, right? That we don't know if something is good, but we do it anyways because of the divine command. Soloveitchik, unfortunately, was very influenced by this Kierkegaardian notion as well. Um, and I think, unfortunately, at, at least there's some humility there. I mean, it's easy to beat up on Kierkegaard, but at least at least there's some humility to say, wow, uh, I, at least I acknowledge it's evil, right? Because I think what we see today among religious fundamentalists is a rejection that it's even evil. I'm going to do all these things, and it's ethical because God said it. Right. That is in, in, in morality, in philosophy, that is called d divine command theory. Right. That what is good is not utilitarianism, deontology, virtue ethics. What is good is solely determined by what was divine, divinely commanded. And that is very dangerous. Right. And that is very dangerous to say that um, I have blind faith that what was commanded or what I believe was commanded. Um, is necessarily good, as opposed to a little a more humble approach, which I, I still think is problematic, of Kierkegaard and Soloveitchik, which says, oh, I can't see this as good, but I may still have to do it because I think God commanded it. Killing Isaac is bad, but I'm going to suspend my notion of bad because of this greater calling of God, right? And so at least that's a little more humble than, than conflating the ethics with the command, I, I think. Um, in any case, um, so, yes, I also associate many notions of blind faith with those two ideas. Um, on the other hand, what, one of the things I've wanted to do here together is extend faith beyond just those categories. To think of faith in self, faith in other, faith in a divinity that is not of a fundamentalist approach. And here I think we might think about a blind faith that actually may serve us. Um, Right. And here I'm, I'm I'm touching on Ethan's comment on the side as well. Right. That th th this type of belief or faith in what we and in, in what we don't know at all. Right. There is no data. There's no data. And so it's blind faith. Right. It's kind of like. Um, um, it's kind of like taking the very first trial of a medicine when someone is sick, um, as opposed to taking the FDA approved later right or being being the guinea pig on on the vaccine rather than waiting till you know millions of people have been vaccinated whatever the case is and so there's the, it, like the type of blind faith is like engaging when there really is no data there really is no understanding at all yet as to whether this is successful or whether this works or whether this is right but then there's this other type um, of faith based upon there being a bunch of data points there's already a bunch of data points and um, so how do we embrace that type of blind faith um, in a way that is constructive and not naive, um, in a way that doesn't undermine our ethical commitments, and in a way that um, um, doesn't disregard what we already knew? Let me give an example. Uh, there are many people, maybe even some here, but I know many people, who because their first marriage was so bad, they would never want to be married again, right? Or maybe most of it was good, but the end was bad, right? 
that essentially their faith in the in the institution of marriage has been shattered, right? Now, then they fall in love with someone, and there you might call it blind faith to then say, like, wow, I once did this and I was so hurt, but I might dive in again, right? Even though I have data that contradicts contradicts this. Or imagine a person who had four miscarriages, right? Um and says, geez, why would I try again to get pregnant? Right? I know the pain that's going to happen if I try again, but I'm going to have a blind faith, even though it contradicts the data of my chances, right? And so a, a type of blind faith can be engaging in something that's likely going to end painfully, but in some, in some faith that there is still a potentiality that contradicts the odds. Um, uh, okay. So, um, yes, okay, I see, I see a few comments here and I want to get to them, but so, but let's hear from, um, uh, from Aglaia and from Ethan, and then I'm going to pick up these on the side as well. Oh, yes, you know, and let me say one thing, actually, before you jump in, because I see, I see two people have brought up this hope and, hope and trust issue. Um, and so get, I'll just say one brief thing there, and, and, I, and I hope other people will weigh on this as well, in, in a sense, this distinction between hope and faith. You know, in a sense, we have to learn to distinguish what I want from what I believe. And th that's that's difficult. Um, to dis And hope, in a sense, is what I want to be, right? And faith, in a sense, is what I believe to be, right? I can hope and I can have hope. I can be hopeful for something that I don't believe to be the case. If I buy a lottery ticket, I'd be pretty foolish to be faithful I'm going to win. But there's nothing wrong with being hopeful, right? You wouldn't buy it if you didn't have some ounce of hope you might win, right? And so sometimes there are things we're not faithful in, but we can be hopeful about. And those two can contradict each other and they can complement each other. We can be faithful in things we're not hopeful about. For example, I might have faith that a messianic era will come, but I have very little hope it's going to be in my lifetime, right? Or the opposite. Like I said, I'm very hopeful. I want so bad there to be an afterlife and the afterlife to look like this and like this and like this. Do I really believe it? I'm not sure. Not sure, but I really want it to be like that. And some people conflate the two, the things we want, we want to be with the things we believe to be. Okay, Aglaia. Okay, so here's my particular problem. I think you know that I was one of the ones who said uh, faith and trust are not exactly happening anytime soon, okay? But here's one of my problems is, and I probably brought this up before, is that I'm a historian, so I look at documents that people who are afraid for their lives had to write. So could they actually tell the truth? No. And so I might actually have to pick up on one word and say, okay, this is what this means, and it totally changed, flips the meaning of this document. Now, here's the problem. I became good enough at it that if I hear, say, for instance, my friends say something strange, I'm going to just, you know, like keep thinking about it and keep thinking about it. And then all of a sudden I know, oh, by the way, this person was my friend, but they just lied to me and everything. And so it just keeps going and everything. So, I mean, I'm aware of just how much people lie about things, too, a little too aware of it. Okay. So one of the things that ended up help helping me, though, because I was um, having, you know, all sorts of problems with this uh, was a book that I never read because I was too traumatized by the movie when I was a kid. But I'll bring pull this out there. OK, so Watership Down, I was too traumatized by the movie when I was a kid to ever read the book. OK, but 
It's all the world will be your enemy, prince with a thousand enemies, and whenever they catch you, they will kill you. But first, you, they must catch you. Digger, listener, runner, prince of, with a swift warning. Be cunning, full of tricks, and your people will never never be destroyed. Now, the reason why that helped me was because I thought of it in the flip it. Where's Okay, people, faith in God. You're always thinking in terms of, do people have faith in God? But I had to flip it around and say, okay, wait a minute, does God have faith in us? And so... Um, that whole scene with, okay, by the way, you have all these enemies and everything was because of human, well, you know, rabbit pride, but human pride also. But I kind of um, got the impression there that God, like the God character is telling the rabbit, the human, that um, I also have faith. You screwed up big time, but I have faith that you will find your way back. You will figure this out. You can actually find your way back. Sort of kind of like telling Adam, yeah, you can get your stuff together eventually. It's going to take you a while, but you can get your stuff together eventually. So should we also look at it? Does God have faith in us? Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yes, thank you, um, you know, for that. And um, and and I would encourage us to think about such a profound question as fluid, right? One might come to the conclusion that if there is a God, God has faith in us because God created us. Why would that be done? However, as history evolves, and here looking at lo- what Lauren shared about with Rav Yitz as well, like that can also evolve, right? Does God, cont- because we saw a flood story, a flood story means God lost faith in that, in all the people, more or less, right? So too in our day, our, is humanity worth having faith in? Um, you know, and that's, that's a profound question. And, um, and that goes into just kind of what narrative we tell of humanity today, you know, of what we see happening and kind of our, the macro picture of, 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 of the narrative. Now to pick up on one of the things you said around people lying a lot, the most common one is described by the the Scottish philosopher, David Hume, is that we're, according to him, um, we're all lying based on the ideas we suggest to believe in, because he said all of our moral judgments are dictated by our emotions, not by our cognition. And so we we claim that we intellectually have come to X, Y and Z conclusion. But really, those intellectual and moral judgments are actually seated in the in the affective realm, in the emotional realm rather than in the cognitive realm. And so, too, people who say, I believe in God or I reject God are also um, guided by their life experiences and by their emotions, perhaps more than their intellectually rigorous conclusions, according to someone like Hume. And so we also might ask ourselves how our faith commitments are actually not product, just products of our of our research, right, but of our of our life circumstances and of our emotional disposition. Um and um, yeah, and 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 one last thing there is, which is you know that as Jean-Paul Sartre famously says, well, I, I, it's actually too big to you know to go there, but his notion of bad faith, that of living with bad faith, meaning living in a role as if we're not free, right? The waiter is walking, acting like a waiter, and they've give they're in bad faith because they're just fitting a role. They're not embracing their radical freedom in the world. And so, too, that's kind of another another notion of faith to kind of bring in here of what it means to break from our roles of what we're expected to be and actually be beyond that. Okay, Ethan, you get the last comment here. Okay, real quick. um, I know it's a bit of semantics and a definitional debate on 
between faith and hope. But if we just for a moment accept that hope is belief in data that we know and therefore the possibility of what could happen and faith is belief in something that we have no data on and still could happen. Um, I would like to push back and say that I question on my understanding of my Judaism, uh, that if we are the Israelites, the people who wrestle with God, um, if at any point we actually are commanded to have faith, um, to believe in anything that we don't uh, wrestle with, that we don't take the opportunity to seek out data points. Um, and I have to say that I really love that about my Judaism, that I'm not commanded to be uh, a sheep wandering aimlessly under the flock of a staff that I have no understanding of, but instead I'm commanded to seek out the data points for myself to cultivate beliefs um, and develop hope for, for uh, in, in a really authentic and genuine way. Great, great. So according to, um, thank you for that, you know, of the 613 meets vote, at least the 611 of them are actions, not beliefs. According to some, there is a mitzvah to believe in God. According to others, there is not, not only because it's simply not there, but also because um, you cannot command belief, just like you cannot command emotion. Those are not voluntary. Those are not things we can, uh, 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 with volition, choose. Right. And, and there is one of the great debates of the Ten Commandments. How do you read the Ten? And the commentators break up the Ten differently. For some, right, Anochi Hashem, right, I am God is the first commandment to believe there is a God. According to others, it is not. It is merely the preface to the first commandment. Right. And so there is no commandment to believe in God. And so I hope we leave here with no judgment towards people who believe in God, no judgment towards those who do not. And certainly no judgment for all the nuance in between, um, but a sense that some notion of faith and trust, the type that works for us, can indeed, in some way, potentially be enhancing of our ability to spread love and kindness in the world. And I hope we figured out one way that it might for us. Have a beautiful day. Before you go, I just want to tell you our topic for next week. Um, our topic for next week is equanimity, menuchat nefesh having an inner calmness, a calmness of spirit, and how that can also enhance our ability to serve. Have a great day, everybody.